Turn with me to Romans chapter 16. This will be our last message. Romans 16 verse 17. Romans chapter 16 verse 17. Paul writes, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Paul is in a protective mode here. He's in a protective mode. He loves the church. He loves every believer in Rome. He's super concerned about their welfare, that they're being informed with what is true these remarks have all to do with love. You know, years ago, the Beatles sang that song, All You Need Is Love. How many of you remember that out of curiosity? Yeah, right, right. A little before my time in a way. But I remember it. Sorry to draw you out on that. And then they broke up. I mean, some people are still bitter over that, right? They broke up. It tells you that love is more than a song. Love is more than a sentiment. In fact, love is not a song. Love is not a sentiment. It is an action. In the context of marriage, a husband is to love his wife, even as Jesus Christ loved the church. Paul said in Ephesians 5, what love looks like is two things. The influence of love is an edifying, nourishing influence. So the influence of love to the recipient, the recipient who's receiving the love is going to grow into their full potential to the glory of God. It's going to be an edifying influence. But he also says that love, this is love's influence, is protective. It's protective. So, I mean, I think of the birth of a child. In fact, yesterday was our baby girl's birthday. And uh, Lily, and I, I can still close my eyes, and I see it right now. I see her for the first time, radiant, beautiful, feminine. I'm in awe. And, um, and then, of course, she's hungry, and she's going to, and, and her mama is going to nurse her, which is, to me, such an incredible, beautiful creation by Almighty God. I mean, can I hear an amen to that? I mean, I'm serious. I'm like, whoa. So you have this picture of nourishing, edifying of a child. She has a need Physically, it is being met by mom. That is a picture of love. Then you have dad who's in the room, who's, uh, who's signing the papers of the hospital and the bills, providing and protecting and praying for, right? So you got this picture of nourishment and protection. Picture of love. In the context of relationships with the opposite sex before marriage, we have a scripture on the screen. The Bible says, treat younger women as sisters with all purity. Purity in the Greek speaks of sinlessness, purity, chastity. So a male actually prior to marriage is to protect a female. He's the protector. His influence is to be nourishing to her potential in Christ, and he's to protect her morally, spiritually, physically. Therefore, what love looks like is that he is going to lead her in such a way that edifies her and protects her, does not lead her in a compromised position or activity. Once a male prior to marriage begins to cross the line, let's say sexually, I'll just say beginning to touch in an inappropriate sexual manner, you're beginning to cross the line. That is actually not love. That's not love, it's not edifying, it's not protecting. What love does prior to marriage in a relationship between a male and female is that true love delays gratification for edification. Delays gratification for edification. Otherwise, sexual compromise will affect the flight pattern of the relationship. It does a lot of things, but now the winds of guilt and compromise and insecurity present themselves and even the fueling of sexual appetite that shouldn't be there. It, it should be protected and it should be only, you know, protected for marriage and then celebrated in marriage. So in short, relationships with the opposite sex before marriage, hands-on when it comes to genuine love that nourishes, protects, praise, friendship, godly character, hands-off with regard to moral and sexual compromise. You say, why am I mentioning all of this? Because I thought it was a dating conference. That's why I thought it was. No, I'm mentioning this because at this time, 
What you have Paul doing is that his final remarks to the church of Rome have all to do with love. Up to this point, he's been nourishing them with the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now he wants to protect them. He is protective of innocent followers of Jesus being exploited by godless ideas that will harm them and undermine the cause of Christ. So therefore, in verse 17, when he says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. They're doing, they're, but their own belly, their own appetite, smooth words, flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple or the innocent. For your obedience has become known to all, and therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of shalom, peace, will crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And everybody said the last word, amen. It's like final words. He's like nourishing, loving, building up this community. We've gone through Romans. We're going to give a bird's eye view of the doctrines that he taught in just a second here. And now he's protective. Now he's like, hey, listen, there are very influential communicators that can, can actually influence in, in an ungodly manner, influential communicators that are going to go outside of the boundaries that God has prescribed or what is sound doctrine. And he actually brings a motif here going back to Genesis 3, where he's saying, look, I want you wise concerning good, and I want you to ignorant concerning evil. It's kind of a picture of Genesis 3, when the Lord instructed Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. Because if you do, you're going to die. Satan comes, questions the sound doctrine, the sound teaching there. He says, no, look, go outside of God's will and your eyes will be open. You'll become like God. He, he actually is integrating in this that motif. And it's saying that there are terrible consequences to being informed in a way and, and allowing it to impact your life outside of the will of God, right? I mean, today, for example, and we all we talk about this, but today, for example, you see, you know, you see a promotion of that which goes outside of clear boundaries of Almighty God. I mean, Genesis 1, God made male, and he made what? Female. So like the idea of a multiple genders is ridiculous. No, there's male, there's female. Okay. So if you go outside of that, it's, it's not a good thing. Breitbart said over a third of children placed on puberty blockers by Britain's controversial Tavistock Child Gender Clinic suffered mental health problems after taking the hormone-altering drugs according to fresh analysis. So you're like, you know, we talk about this, we know it's happening, and, um, and we're fighting against it, and we want to expose it, but what, what is happening? You have blind guides in the medical community destroying children's lives. That's what's happening. You have ph pharmaceutical companies playing God for profit. You have the over-sexualization of our children, and it's demonic. It's like... So what's, what's the point in context? The point in context is, is that all of that is outside of original design. You go outside, you eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, you go outside of right teaching, God, His will, you have breakdown. You got big breakdown. You got, you got demonic influence. You know, I, I just want to say I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of our church family. I mean, because, you know, we, we've, there's an open door to get right into the elementary school because on Fridays are going to be after school Bible study. And we got four out of the seven in the group in our church. I'm really proud of it. And uh, so I just want to say that. Good job, you guys. God bless you. Right? So like, what's Paul saying? I want you to be wise in what is good, simple concerning evil. So if you have... If you have effective communicators, this is what he's saying, that is going to go outside of original design, you've got you to note them, watch, mark them, avoid them, avoid them. And, and all of this is another way of saying doctrine matters. All scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for what is right. Doctrine, 
what is not right, how to get right, stay right, and do what is right. You know, I've been following Bibi Netanyahu, I mean, on, you know, in the news, that is, and when he came to the United States and he sat down with Elon Musk and he was concerned about promotion of anti-Semitism on Twitter, and, and they were talking about all kinds of things. And so Elon Musk essentially said, hey, look, we, we got 500, 600 million users throughout the world. We have 200 million transactions on Twitter. You know, it's hard to, to identify bad ideas be, until they get on Twitter. Then we can maybe dampen it down. But really the idea was that you, got, you have influences, that you got influencers out there that are perpetuating godless ideas that harm people. I mean, that, I mean his conversation with Elon was like, man, what can we do, you know, not to spread, okay, generally speaking, false doctrine that demean people, devalue people, that spread anti-Semitism and these other things. And, and the, the idea in the passage is, look, you, you want to be really strong. In fact, the first point, we have it up on the screen here, you want to be really strong on what sound doctrine is because it's the best way to detect and deflect what is counterfeit that undermines the cause of Christ. Can I hear a big amen to that? It's true. It's like, you know, what's counterfeit before what is genuine? I mean, if you're holding dollar bills, it's, as I understand it, you know, they train those who detect the counterfeit from the genuine by just becoming very familiar with what the truth is. So then you're able to identify what is not true. Before, be, here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do a, like, a flyover of the book of Romans. I'm really excited about it. I mean, I got, I got like 13 points, so we'll be here till like 1 p.m. But I mean, but the thing is, is that here's, here's what, this is the picture I had in my mind. Things are moving so fast. It, it just is, and we all know it, that it's almost like we're getting in a plane. And, you know, as I understand it, pilots will kind of program the plane you know, to, they'll, 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 they'll program the plane. What's it called? I mean, whatever. Okay. So you, what's that? Autopilot. Autopilot. Okay. So you get in there. And, and my understanding is that you take off on a, you know, 777 of LA, you know, the pilot is, is actually take, it has, has, has it in his hands and he's taking off and then he pushes autopilot, right? Once you take off and it, and it just basically flies itself. The thing is, is that things are moving so quick, uh, I believe, personally. It, it's, um, it's just so important. We get, we get downloaded in our soul. We, we download the truth. We know what the truth is. And so because we're, we're moving at mock speed these days, you got turbulence, got all these different things. And to ensure the right trajectory and the right course, we just need to know the truth. And it's like, it's like almost before you take off, you gotta, we got we to gotta push it autopilot because it's going to move very, very quick. And the autopilot is the truth of God's word. I hope that made sense. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Let, let's go over this. Here's, here's first perspective. Knowing, excuse me, Jesus, and we have it on the screen, is, and we studied this, and we all know it, he's the son of God, who resurrected from the dead. Can I hear an amen to that? I mean, look how Paul begins his message, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, this is Romans 1.1, 1, 1, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Separated to the gospel. There's the good news of God. This is a contrast, really, first century Conventional wisdom because actually the term gospel was associated with the emperor and was used to announce a new emperor, the gospel. We're going to declare good news of a new emperor. We're going to, de we're going to tell good news of maybe the birthday of the emperor. So it was like, no, he immediately confronts actually the false systems of the day. And, and actually, at this particular time, and we talked about it billions of times, but at this time, you have the emperor who was seen as the son of God. He was the son of divine. So Paul, I mean, his first remarks is that he's saying, I want to talk to you about, I want to talk to you about not the gospel of the emperor. I want to talk to you about the authoritative gospel of Almighty God. 
And it trumps, obviously, a false gospel. It says in verse 2, he promised beforehand his prophets the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus, Messiah, our Lord, born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God, with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And therefore, him we have received grace and apostleship for the obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name. Big idea. Hey, Paul is bringing the truth to the epicenter of the empire, Rome. He wants to bring the truth. Jesus is the king. The emperor is not the king. Ultimately, we must give our allegiance to Jesus. He's the king. He was born in Bethlehem, gave his life on the cross, resurrected and sent. He's coming back again. So it's like our allegiance needs to be right. And this was demonstrated by the resurrection from the dead. And listen, if we get this right, as C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. It's like, man, now you know, Jesus, the Son of God, clearly demonstrated by the Son of God. What, what, what? It's like Paul is saying, you know, you don't want to go outside of sound doctrine. Jesus resurrected, bodily resurrection. He's not, he's not a ghost. It's like he's the Son of God. We all can say a big amen to that. Okay, what, so we learned that. What else have we learned? Because we are not to go outside what we have learned, Right? So if you go down to verse 16, and this is the second kind of big idea, is that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. To the Jew, then the Gentile, the power of God to salvation. I mean, seriously, what does that mean? Um, it means that the only hope for the breakdown of humanity in the world is the regeneration that Jesus Christ brings. That that's what it's saying. It's, it's, it's saying that there's a significant systemic breakdown in man and the world. Things are heating up. We know there's a darkness behind the darkness. The only hope is Jesus. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes the Jew and the Gentile. And, and then he's going to, of course, give a case for it. And I thought it was interesting when Bibi Netanyahu, he was before the UN. He said, ladies and gentlemen, whether our future will prove to be a blessing or a curse will also depend on how we address perhaps the most consequential development of our time, the rise of artificial intelligence. The AI revolution is progressing at lightning speed. It took centuries for humanity to adapt to the agricultural revolution. It took decades to adapt to the industrial revolution. We may have but a few years to adapt to the AI revolution. The parallels are great, and they're before us. The disruption of democracy, manipulation of minds, decimation of jobs, proliferation of crime, and the hacking of all systems that facilitate modern life. Yet even more disturbing is the potential eruption of AI-driven wars that would achieve unimaginable scale. Behind this, perhaps, looms even a greater threat. Once the stuff of science fiction, that self-taught machines could eventually control humans instead of the other way around. The world's leading nations, however competitive, must address these dangers. We must do so quickly, and we must do it together. We must ensure that the promise of AI utopia does not turn into AI dystopia. We have so much to gain. Imagine the blessings of finally cracking the genetic code, extending human life by decades, dramatically reducing the ravaging of, age, of aging. Well, that sounds good right there. No, just kidding. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, imagine healthcare tailored to each individual's genetic composition, predictive medicine that prevents diseases long before they occur. Imagine robots helping to care for the elderly. Imagine the end of traffic jams with self-serving vehicles on the ground, below the ground, and in the air. Imagine personalized education that cultivates each person's full potential. He says, I know this sounds like a John Lennon song, but it could all happen. Imagine that we can achieve the end of scarcity, something that eluded humanity for all of history. It's all within our reach. And here's something else within our reach. With AI, we can explore the heavens as never before extend humanity beyond our blue planet. For good or bad, the developments of AI will spearhead by a handful of nations, and my country, Israel, is going to be among them. 
So here's what I want to say. The only hope for the future is to be born again by the Holy Spirit. It's not to marry bi biology with technology. It isn't. The only hope is to be born again by the Holy Spirit. The hope is not in AI. It's in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is saying. And then it's like, well, why is this? If you look at verse 18, he gives the authoritative diagnosis for the breakdown of men. So, you know, just like, you know, the real problem here, in other words, is this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly known, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power, Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So look, for time's sake, what he's saying here is this is the authoritative diagnosis for the breakdown of man. Wrath speaks of breakdown. Wrath is the consequence of being outside of God's parameters. It's like, you know, taking your car, you know, over the, the lines and then, you know, terrible accident or something. And he's saying wrath is revealed from heaven. And he goes on to extend two reasons. One is, Mankind suppresses the truth of God, disregards God, that's a big mistake, and suppresses their conscience, which is the moral apparatus that accuses or excuses our actions. When you do that, the mind does not work properly. It's called a reprobate mind, okay? So it's like, it's a term that we don't often use, but it just doesn't work properly. And, and, we're seeing, we're seeing that today in a big way. I don't, I don't even have to keep talking about it. But the point is, Jesus is the Son of God. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. The authoritative diagnosis is not a lack of information. It, it is a broken relationship with Almighty God. It is actually rebellion. It's like we know what's true. We suppress what's true, and we suppress our conscience. That results in a mind that is really, really, really dark. It doesn't even operate correctly. So, so what have we learned? Um, well, let's just keep building on this. If you go to chapter 3, what we learned, and this is sound doctrine, right? Please look with me in verse 19. We learned, and this is number 4. Sorry, Bill, if I'm messing you up back there. So we're on number 4. Thank you. Is... Um, the world is guilty. I mean, you know, every human being is guilty before God. We need help. In verse 19, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world may become guilty before God. And therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So in other words, let's take the Ten Commandments like a spotlight that reveals who we really are. We've all broken the Ten Commandments, whether in action or in attitude or inside who we are. We've, we've all blown it. There's a deep defect of humanity. We need help. And the only hope, and this is number five, please look with me in verse 23 of chapter three. The only hope is that the just one perfectly just, by the blood of Jesus, becomes the justifier of those who believe. Big idea. But he says in verse 23, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Being justified, which means declared righteous, just as if you never sinned, freely by his grace, it's a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his own blood. In other words, Jesus bore our sin like a big sponge. He absorbed it. He became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins. There's, a, there's an allusion there to Passover itself that we're 
previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's like, oh my goodness, the most beautiful king. He's perfectly just and righteous, and we aren't. How does God make unjust men just? And the answer is, he sends his son. He bears our sins. He exchanges our filth with his righteousness. Can I hear a big amen to that? It's like, praise God, right? I mean, so if we go to chapter 8, Yay. Hey, are you having fun? Because I love this study. Verse 9. If you go to chapter 8, um, what's the next point? Good news is, look at verse 1, chapter 8. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. There is therefore now no judgment, condemnation for those who are in Jesus. So look, have you turned to Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because he paid the debt of your sin. We know, thank God. Hey, we're, none of us are perfect. We're still in, constru- you know, in process and things. But look, Jesus suffered for our sins. Okay? There's a big difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is being drawn to the Lord. Like, okay, he's running after me. He's drawing me back. Thank God I got a great papa. Knew everything about me. Still loves me. I'm in process. Condemnation is driving you away. Condemnation is pointing the finger, right? And it's like, oh my gosh, man. It's like, yeah, I know. But no, there's, there's no condemnation. So I just want to say, I don't know. If you're beating yourself up because of your failures, um, Stop it, because there's been enough suffering. Jesus gave his life on the cross. I mean, hey, repent, I mean, if you're sinning, but receive his forgiveness because he paid it all for us. Can I hear an amen to that? I love it. Hey, number seven, we have it on the screen. Jesus will bring regeneration to the deep dislocation of man and the world. I mean, this is, this is Romans chapter eight. Please look with me in verse 18. This is sound doctrine. We're just talking about sound doctrine, the real article. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The big idea is that the Lord's work continues He's returning. We're going to be with him. We're going to be in a glorified state. Okay? All of creation, it's like it, it actually implies a deep dislocation, a breakdown, waiting for the reign of Jesus. That's the idea. And verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. You know, I've told this story before, just after the climax of the trilogy, of the Lord of the Rings, Sam Ganji discovers that his friend Gandalf was not dead, as he thought. But he's alive. And he cries, well, I-, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? That's the question. And the answer of Christianity is to that question, yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And somehow it will be greater for having once been broken and lost. In other words, we're talking our Lord, this is the gospel. He will bring regeneration to our lives, to our bodies, even to planet Earth. Can I hear a big amen to that? This is the teaching. This is sound doctrine, okay? 
And then, of course, look at verse 28. I mean, this is number eight you have in your notes as well. That is in Christ, all things are working for the good, the highest good. He's in process making us more like Jesus. Now, praise God for that. The Father's at work in your life. Jesus is at work in your life. Holy Spirit is at work in your life. Behind the scenes, he's working it out. Behind the scenes, like he knows fully what's going on. He's at the right hand. We have his full attention. Praise God. All of this is sound doctrine, of course. And if you go to Romans chapter 11, what have we learned? Well, here's the gospel. The good news is that one day all Israel will be saved. Now, so, someone asked me, and I'm so glad that you did, thank you, that during the last seven years prior to the second coming of Jesus, I mean, Israel faces huge, huge challenges. And, and there's, there's significant loss of life. It's true. So, so when it's like, hey, all Israel saved, what do you mean by that? Um, Jesus said, you will not see me till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In fact, today is Yom Kippur. Today, prophetically, I'm convinced, speaks of the second coming of Jesus when he sets his feet on planet Earth. He brings judgment to the nations. Matthew 25 separates the goats from the sheep. He establishes his kingdom. He brings the regeneration, and we are with him. We are with him. The saints are with all, and we are admiring our, our king, our savior, our hero. But prior to the second coming of Jesus, Jerusalem turns to him. It's actually essential for his second coming. It will be the trigger for his second coming. They will turn to him. They will have suffered terrible losses. But the good news is Israel as a nation will live her full potential. In the Messiah, the Davidic king, God keeps his promises. And this is actually inherent when we receive communion, and we talk about us all the time, so thanks for your patience. When we receive communion, the Lord said, I will not drink of this cup uh, until I do it in the kingdom with you. He's speaking to Jewish boys there, Jewish men. He's saying, There's going to, I'm going to die. There's going to be a dispersion. You're going to have judgment on Jerusalem. The good news, there's hope. And when he's on the cross, he says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's like most immediate context. You've got to look at that. Like he's forgiven us for sure. But you've got to look at that to the nation of Israel who has just rejected the Messiah. Are you with me on this? And it's like, hey, there's great hope. All Israel will be saved. Verse 25, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Israel. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Praise God for that. And actually, that's not only saying Israel's going to be saved, but it actually says Jesus is coming again. And that's number 10 there on your notes. Jesus is returning back to Jerusalem to reign. So when we come to Romans chapter 12, right? We were studying all this. this I think we've had like 35 messages in Romans. So if you come to chapter 12, I mean, the idea is, that the most reasonable action in life is to give oneself entirely to the Lord and his genius plan. And so he says in verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. I mean, his plan. He's, he's been talking about it. You present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Like the most reasonable thing to do is follow Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. Do not be conformed to this world. Be squeezed by outside forces. Transform by the renewing of your, what's the next word, you guys? Mind. Good job, guys. That you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. The idea is believe what is true. 
Doubt your doubts. Believe your beliefs. If you believe your beliefs and you believe it's true, you're going to, you know what's going to happen? You're going to say, oh my goodness gracious, this, this is God's will. What a blessing it is. Believe it. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then, number 12, we have it on the screen. He talks about how important it is to respect and protect the family of God. Because he says, we being many are one body in Christ. So, look, the church is the most diverse family on planet Earth. Have you noticed that? I mean, it's really, really diverse. And, um, you know, Dr. Craig Keener, who's like one of my favorite theologians, great guy. I mean, to give a little insight, like, to the dynamics of the first century, he said many of the founders of the Roman church were Jewish Christians. But sometime in 40 AD, the emperor Claudius, like the emperor Tiberius, expelled the Jewish community from Rome. The Roman church was thus composed entirely of Gentiles until Claudius' death. When his edict was automatically repealed, Jewish Christians returned to Rome. Jewish and Gentile Christians had, I'm going to add a few words, totally different cultural ways of expressing their faith. He didn't say totally. That's just a little, because I'm from Southern California. Put the totally in there. Paul thus must address a church experiencing tension between two valid cultural expressions of the Christian faith. Oh, that's, that's just good to know. That's just, it's just saying, like, to bring Jew and Gentile in one man in Christ is an incredibly beautiful endeavor, and our Lord is really good at it. And we can do our part to major on the essentials. In the essentials, unity. Like, what are the essentials? Oh, we've just been talking about the essentials. In the non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, love, right? And he goes on to say, verse, not verse 13, but number 13, love, love abhors that which is evil. So love protects, edifies, values people, overcomes evil with good, while evil degrades, deceives, and harms. And we spent actually three weeks on that. But we are to abhor what is evil, that's for sure. There's no doubt about it. But we're not to be overcome by evil. We're to overcome evil with good, right? Evil is not only the result of sin that reveals itself in harming mankind, but there's also an evil one. There's no doubt about it. We're amidst a battle, and we need to be aware of it. And then he says in chapter 13, um, well, we, we studied this, I think, probably two or three weeks as well, but I'll just summarize that it. it's on the screen. This is number 14. God ordained government, but government is not God. And our first allegiance is always to God. So we need to be responsible citizens. There's no doubt about it. The idea would be if the government is ever asking you to do something that violates your conscience or the commandments of God, your allegiance always goes to Almighty God first. Okay? So it's like, here's the thing. Context, you know, in chapter 10, Paul said, if you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. I mean, there was growing tension. I didn't mention this at the outset, but if you go back to chapter 1, he said, I want to talk to you about the gospel of God because there's the gospel of the emperor. you got to understand what's growing, growing like in the empire is increasing belief that man is God and the emperor is God. And so you are subject to him. So our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago, is like every year, many of them were subject. Are you going to express your allegiance, your allegiance to the emperor? Are you going to burn incense and say Caesar is Lord? And our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago were like, no way. And many of them were thrown there into the Colosseum uh, and, you know, used for sport and lost their lives. Which, by the way, it was the empire, Roman Empire, that destroyed the city of Jerusalem, took the menorah and the holy articles back to Rome, used, actually, the destruction of Jerusalem and its holy articles to fund the Colosseum. That, that was part of 
the, the, the coalescing, the facilitating of the murder of brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. So look, the, the, the spirit, the, this type of spirit, and what I mean by that is ideas, but there is the spirit of evil, there's no doubt about it. There are demons. Um, well, there's some things that have never changed. What was, is, and will be. And it's like, um, like, thank God for our country, a constitution, there's no doubt about it. But Christians are not to succumb to that which is in opposition to their conscience and the commandments of Almighty God. Government exists to ensure righteousness and punish evil. Can I hear a big amen to that? So there you go. So if we go back to verse 17, and we're almost done. Yay, yay, yay. Oh, I got, you know, I got this, I love this. I don't know if you notice. I got four minutes, and there it is right there. I'm not going to blow it. Oh, can't believe I'm going to do this. I don't think I'm going to do it, though. I don't think I got it. Okay, look at verse 17. I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn and avoid them. Ah, conflict is inevitable in any family. It is. We're flawed human beings. But one way that God redeems factions and adversity is 1 Corinthians 11.19 says, For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. It's like, what? Um, the Lord redeems adversity and challenges. And, you know, look, we're all imperfect in our families, in the church family. But the Lord uses it. He uses it to reveal what he approves. And one of the things that it reveals is that it should lead us to correct belief or essential beliefs, doctrine. And we've been talking about that. In addition, it should lead to godly behavior because the Bible says that we need to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Greek word translated endeavoring literally means studying. The idea is we need to study on how to get along with people who are difficult, who are defeated, even those we don't like. We're to give a great effort to it, endeavor to keep the unity in the bond of peace. So if I were to just summarize it, it kind of gets back to what we were saying earlier. You know, in the essentials, unity, non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, love. And I think things are moving so quickly, so fast, we need to major on the majors, not the minors. Can I hear an amen to that? Kind of, you know, core convictions like Jesus is Lord and his plan. All the things we've been talking about versus conscience convictions. Hills we die on versus hills that we do not die on. I mean, Jude 1.3, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common faith, common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Most disunity in the church is over non-essential doctrines. It's like first-tier doctrines, Jesus is Lord, bodily resurrection, he's coming again. There's, you know, the core problem, sin. Jesus, Jesus resurrected bodily. There's judgment, deity of Christ, triune nature of God. Then when you start getting a second, third, fourth, and we talked about this for like three, three weeks, you get, you get, they're all important, but they get lesser important. So now in second might be interpretations of certain doctrines and, you know, how to baptize. And do you, you, when you baptize, do you like dunk three times, you dunk once, you keep down, keep the person down for at least 10 seconds. I don't know. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, I mean, that's like maybe a fourth or fifth or 18th like tier. I mean, is that, is that really that important? But look, things are moving quick. The, the best way, the best, I'm convinced, the best way that we can ensure unity that we're not turning the sickles on each other and missing the harvest is to be really good on sound doctrine, to renew our minds, whether to be committed to it. And with regard to the DNA of our church here, um, I'll just make a few comments. I just want to say, like, we exist to know Jesus and to make him known. And we, we exist to live out our faith because faith without works is dead. 
I was in, at the hospital Thursday night because our precious daughter had a terrible reaction to some sushi she had. So her heart was racing to 170 and she was uh, these welts. And it was scary for her. I mean, I, and I, it would be for anyone, obviously. My mom has AFib. So I thought, oh my goodness, not my daughter. So I didn't know. So we went up to Irvine. And so, I mean, I was standing outside of the emergency, and I was, I was there gladly to be with my daughter, but I was there for like four hours outside. And uh, I was watching all these things. I got to meet so many wonderful people um, and talk to so many wonderful people. All the people I met and talked to were Iranian. It was like a beautiful, no, I, I was shocked. I think, how did you get in our country? It's one lady, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm serious. I think, sweethearts, and they were like, one lady said, I, 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 it, by the lottery, she said, the lottery? I mean, I'm like, I don't know, what lottery are we talking about? Um, maybe something from Governor Newsom, just kidding. Um, so anyways, I said, great. She had a cast, you know. But anyways, I was watching all of this stuff. I was watching this one dad who's carrying his son. Oh, it just kills me, you know. Running to the emergency, you know. Oh, yeah, sorry about that. Wait a second. So, ooh. You know, and I think, I'm, I'm just reading like, oh man, he hit his head bad. Anyways, I was just watching all these dynamics. What they do in an emergency is they, at the hospitals, they prioritize like, you know, the, the, the patients. And uh, because my daughter had issues potentially with her heart, that she was a priority. And so the blood panel, these different things. The, bo- the young boy, who I think had a hin- head injury, just terrible to see. I remember those head injuries with our sons. So, and the dad in the panic, you know, boom, front of the line. You know, the other people were hanging in there. Uh, and this one gal, this uh, gal from Persia, had injury to her hand, but it wasn't broken. She's in a cast, so she's waiting longer. Anyways, all that had to say, there is priority when it comes to ministry. The, the, the core brokenness of man is an absence of right relationship with God. We need to make Jesus known. We need to double down, preach Jesus Christ. Can I hear a big amen to that? But let me tell you, having said that, casts, I mean, boundaries, righteousness, law, legislation is also important. Did you get that? It's like godly, righteous legislation matters because you have this terrible brokenness. Like if you don't correct it, it's just more and more terribly deformed. So we bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man needs to be born again. We should also stand for the law. See, what do you mean the law? Um, well, just uh, truth. R- read, read the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis. The law. The, there's a God, male, female, family, brokenness, promise through Abraham to impact the entire world, the Messiah, I mean, and more. The moral law, the Ten Commandments. Very, very, very important. Sin is no friend to anyone. Sin morphs, makes things worse, and metastasizes. And if the church doesn't speak, who will? God help us. We're committed to the Word of God in context. We want to bring the Word of God into the context of our time, to be watchful and prophetic. And we recognize that the source of our strength is prayer and the Holy Spirit. We believe in the great commandments to love God and to love others, and we believe Jesus is coming again. And that hope purifies us even as he is pure. And I just went over three minutes. Sorry about that. Let's all, let's all stand. Let's all stand. See, I don't even keep my own standards. This is terrible. So, Lord, I, I thank you for this morning. Lord, we all want to tell you that, that your doctrine, like the truth, is so beautiful, so beautiful. So we thank you. When we thank you, you've revealed it to us. Thank you we get to study it. We want our minds renewed in it. We want to recommit to it. We want to be strong in it. We want to, like, uh, you know, discern righteousness and beauty and love and truth and Jesus Christ and deflect uh, what is not true. And that would be harmful to people and harmful to the body of Christ. That's our prayer. And I just want to end by saying this. Look, the most important, like, doctrine, in other words, teaching, information you could ever hear is what Jesus said when he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish 
but have everlasting life. And Jesus went on to say, he didn't come to condemn the world, he came to save it, but that the world is broken and is already under judgment. So I would just say, my dear friend, if you're here for the first time, maybe you've come a few times, but if you've yet to open the door of your heart to Christ and turn from your sin and turn to God, I hope it is this morning. These are urgent times. Um, I believe dark times. I believe times of distraction. And Jesus said that the enemy is a robber. He's a thief. He wants to rip off your soul. And one way that you could see this is I've never known someone who gave a good reason for not saying yes to Jesus Christ. So there's a battle. There's going to be a battle like you're at a crossroads. As Bibi Netanyahu said, it's biblical. God has set before us life and death, blessings and cursings. So you're at a crossroad. And Jesus said, I am the life and I am the resurrection and I am the truth. So to embrace Christ is the surest way to be right with God, the safest choice you could ever make now and for eternity. So I pray that this morning, that's what you would do if you've yet to do it. You say, well, how do I do it? Recognize what he's done for you. He died for you on the cross. He resurrected. He's alive. And the Bible says that those who call upon the Lord shall be saved. He really is just a prayer away. Jesus said we need to repent, unless, otherwise we'll perish. And today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. I would just like to lead in a word of prayer. This will be, if you would like to receive Christ. So if you want to step into this, you mean it, the Lord will honor it. It's more than a prayer. It's your heart aligning to what's true, and you're making a confession. Pray with me if that's what you would like at this time. This is a way of saying, okay, I believe. I want to receive it. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I call upon you now to be my Savior and Lord. Thank you for dying for me, resurrecting from the dead. I know I'm a sinner, but I know you're a great Savior. Thank you for forgiving me. I ask for your forgiveness. Lord, come into my life and fill me with the life of God. I turn to you now. Take my stand to follow you. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for coming into my life, making me your child, both now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.